0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. St. Luke tells us the story of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Mary. In Luke's Gospel, which is not what I just read, but in Luke's Gospel we see an angel come to a young girl to announce that she will bear Israel's Messiah. And we get a sense of her excitement... That might be putting it mildly, because everyone was, after all, waiting for the Messiah. And there were plenty of girls hoping that maybe, just maybe, especially at that time, people just thought it's imminent that the Messiah is, is coming. So there were girls who perhaps hoped that maybe she would be his mother. But most people would have expected him to be born in a palace to someone in a wealthy or a connected family, someone royal. So you can imagine Mary's utter and absolute shock when she learns that she's going to be the one. I mean, yes, her family's technically descended from David, but that didn't mean they were royals by any stretch of the imagination. They were just simple, common, everyday people. Now, St. Matthew, on the other hand, which we just heard, Matthew tells the same story, but from the perspective of Joseph. Joseph's in the opposite situation. He's anything but excited to hear the news that Mary is pregnant. It's not very hard to hear and to imagine the disappointment, the embarrassment, even the shame that he felt. Even though Matthew says he didn't want to shame Mary, he had to be feeling a certain amount of shame. And Mary tells him, no, 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 you don't understand. It's not another man. I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That's what the angel told me. I don't understand how it can be, but he told me that this child is the Messiah. And Joseph's not stupid. He knows where babies come from. This was was going to bring shame on him. And so Matthew says Joseph made plans to quietly separate from Mary, to break off the engagement. I expect he hoped maybe he could just quietly put put some distance from that, save some face, move on, and maybe find someone more respectable to Mary. But then the angel appeared to Joseph. Joseph, son of David! The angel greeted him. Now, Joseph, he's also a descendant of King David. I mean, technically speaking. But lots of people were descendants of David. It had been almost a thousand years. His descendants are dispersed throughout the nation. And I'm sure this was the very first time anyone had ever addressed Joseph as if he were a prince. But the angel's making a point. Joseph is a part of that royal family the family from which the Messiah would come. Not the branch of the family people expected, but he was part of that family nevertheless. So Joseph, don't be afraid to follow through with this marriage to Mary. She wasn't lying when she told you she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. She's not crazy. A miracle has really happened. She's going to have a son. And listen, when he's born... You need to name him Jesus. Why? Because he is the one who will save his people from their sins. Mary and Joseph's story both intersect at that point with the angel saying, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. That's, that's what happens every time someone in the Bible meets an angel. Or gets a message from God. Don't be afraid. God announces that he's about to do something. Maybe what he says he's going to do is itself scary and frightening. Maybe it just seems crazy and impossible. Sometimes it's something that sounds incredibly foolish. This announcement about the baby conceived by the Holy Spirit... And the angels urging Joseph to go ahead and marry Mary pretty well hits all of those points. If there were any two people who needed this exhortation to fear not, Joseph and Mary needed it. But maybe we need to hear it too as we, as you and I, read the Christmas story. Because we might think, is it really necessary to emphasize this particular part of the Christmas story? I know a lot of people believe it, but they don't want to talk about it. It's fine for us, but the people out there, the people going about their business in Courtney and in Comox, if they hear us talking about this part of the Christmas story, the Messiah, born of a virgin, they're going to think we're stupid or superstitious or naive because that's not where babies come from. And that's not the kind of thing that happens in the real world. And so there are people who throw out this part of the story because they associate it maybe with the later legend that grew up about Mary's supposed perpetual virginity. And the teaching that came closely along with that, that sex is bad and wrong and sinful. And of course, the Bible says none of those things. The gospel writers give us absolutely every reason to believe that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary went on to have a perfectly normal and godly married life and to have other godly children, as God intended for married couples to do. The reason Matthew and Luke tell us this story is because they believed it was true. They had their own reasons to be afraid in telling it. Because the pagans, they told stories about half-human men and women, demigods fathered by the gods. Ancient mythology is full of those stories. Where did all these Greek heroes come from? Zeus got around a lot. Matthew may have been afraid that people would think he was somehow borrowing from these myths. He surely knew that some people would say that in reporting that Mary was pregnant by the Holy Spirit, well, Matthew was just covering for some indiscretion on her part. And other people have said Matthew made this part of the story up so that he could claim Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The verse he quotes from Isaiah 7. What's really interesting about that is that there is no evidence whatsoever that anyone before Matthew had ever thought of Isaiah's prophecy being fulfilled in the birth of the coming Messiah. No one ever made that connection until Matthew. Or maybe it was an early Christian tradition and we only hear about it from Matthew. But whatever the case, nobody in Israel before had been thinking that way. Isaiah's prophecy, they knew, was fulfilled in the days of King Ahaz. Everybody knew that. It was Matthew knowing what Isaiah had said and the history that surrounded that prophecy who saw there this sort of prefiguring of Jesus. And there are all sorts of ways that people find something to be afraid of in this story. All sorts of reasons people find to just reject it, to say that didn't happen. But neither Matthew nor Luke asks us just to take their word for it. Notice that Matthew, in particular, he connects the story of Jesus' birth with the much bigger story, with the story of Israel and of Israel's God. It's almost as if he was anticipating that someone would say, virgin birth, right, Matthew? At your age, how can you not know where babies come from? To the person who says the world doesn't work this way, and to the person who might say God doesn't work that way, Matthew saying you want to bet and he points us back to look at how God has worked in the history of his people and this is the point of Matthew's quote from Isaiah 7 about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son named Emmanuel Matthew ties the birth of Jesus into the larger story of redemption and the story of Israel and Israel's God so roll back the clock 730 years before Jesus was born. That's a long time, isn't it? But go back 730 years before Jesus was born. That's when the events of Isaiah 7 and 8 and 9 took place. It was a time in Israel's history when things were looking very bad. There were lots of those times, but this was a particularly bad one of those bad times. The kingdom had been split for about 200 years. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. A man named Ahaz was the king of Judah, ruling in Jerusalem. And Ahaz is one of those guys we read about in the book of Kings, of which it is said, everything he did was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now It's worth noting that in pragmatic political terms, Ahaz was actually a pretty good king. He played played politics and he played at foreign policy in a way that kept Judah safe. But that is not how God judges kings. The Lord had told his people, trust in me. Don't trust in foreign alliances with the pagans. Don't bow to pagan gods. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in chariots. Trust in me. But Ahaz, he trusted in all those other things. Assyria to the east. That was the great power of the day, the big empire. And it was threatening everybody around. So Israel, the northern kingdom, and its neighbor Syria, they made an alliance with each other for their mutual security but they still weren't really strong enough. Assyria was big, really big. So the kings of Assyria, and the, the king rather of Syria and the king of Israel, they came to Jerusalem and they put pressure on King Ahaz. You need to join our alliance. It's the only chance we've got. Ahaz knew better. Assyria was still bigger. There was no hope in aligning himself with his enemies, Israel and Syria. So instead... He sort of preemptively submitted Judah to the sovereignty of the Assyrians. And while he was in Assyria, he fell under the influence of Assyrian religion. When he came back to Jerusalem, he built an altar like the ones he had seen in Assyria. And he had the temple itself rearranged to accommodate this altar to a pagan foreign god. He introduced Assyrian astrological practices to Judah. He even sacrificed one of his sons to the Assyrian god, Moloch. And it's in the midst of this that the prophet Isaiah comes to Ahaz. Isaiah was sent by the Lord to Ahaz the first time, just as the kings of Syria and Israel were urging him to make an alliance with them against the Assyrian empire. And when Isaiah went, he didn't go to the king alone. The Lord told him, take your son, Shear-Jashub, which means a remnant shall return. The message the Lord was sending through Isaiah and his son was a familiar one. Don't be afraid. Israel and and Syria were threatening to swoop down on Jerusalem with their combined armies. But the Lord said to Ahaz, it shall not stand. The Lord was urging the king to trust in him. He also said through Isaiah, if you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Isn't that still true? You can stand firm on all sorts of other things. But if you do not stand firm in faith in this God, you shall not stand at all. You may stand today, but eventually you'll be knocked down. Ahaz, however, waffled instead of standing firm. The Lord warned him not to ally with Israel and Syria, and Ahaz didn't. But it wasn't because of the Lord's warning. Ahaz was afraid of Israel and Syria, and so instead of trusting the Lord to take care of Judah, he considered submitting himself and his people to Assyria. And of course, in the ancient world, you didn't submit to another king or to another country without also submitting yourself to their gods. And so the Lord sent Isaiah to the king again with another warning. And this is a passage Matthew draws on. Isaiah said to the king, Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land before whose two kings you are in dread will be deserted. But the Lord was saying to Ahaz was, Trust in me. Don't trust in horses. Don't trust in chariots. Don't trust in pagan kings and pagan gods. Trust in me and I will take care of you. I am your God. And you are my people. Try to think of a an analogy in the modern world. And of course, it's not quite the same because no nation in the modern world stands in the same position that Israel stood before God in the Old Testament. But imagine if Isaiah or some modern prophet had gone to Yalta when the Big Three met and stood there in front of Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin and said trust in me set aside the foreign alliances perhaps looking at Roosevelt and Churchill and saying you cannot ally with Stalin don't do it don't trust in horses and chariots but trust in me I imagine if that had happened at Yalta it would have seemed just as absurd As it did to Ahaz. My nation is going to be overrun by the most powerful empire in the world. And you're telling me that I shouldn't play politics. And shouldn't get involved in foreign policy. The Lord had Isaiah mentioned a young woman. The Hebrew word refers to an unmarried girl. Some Bible versions translate this as virgin because being unmarried, the girl was presumably a virgin. Matthew uses the Greek word that specifically means virgin virgin in his telling of it in his gospel, but he's got a reason for that, and we'll see that in a minute. But this passage in Isaiah, this girl that Isaiah mentions, it's not a reference to Mary or to any earlier miraculous virgin birth. Who this girl was has been lost to history, but it seems to be someone who was known to the king. It might have been one of the women in Isaiah's circle of disciples, or it may have been a princess in the king's family, but whoever it was, Isaiah tells the king that she is going to have a child, and he is going to be named Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And the Lord tells the king that by the time this child is eating solid food, by the time he is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the Lord himself will put an end to the threat posed by the kings of Israel and Syria. Again, don't trust in horses, don't trust in chariots, don't trust in pagan kings and their false idols. Trust in the Lord and walk with him that wasn't the end of it. The Lord sent Isaiah a third time to this king who was a horrible listener. And this time a woman referred to as the prophetess. Probably Isaiah's wife, but maybe someone in his circle of disciples. But she had borne a son whose name was Mahershalal Hashbaz. And that name means the, the spoil speeds, the prey hastens. And the Lord's message was again for Ahaz to trust in him. He says, before this child, this son, is old enough to say the words father and mother, the Lord would deal with the threat of Israel and Syria. Again, don't trust in pagan kings and their idols. Trust in the Lord. God is with us, declared Isaiah. The Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against for both houses of Israel, meaning the northern kingdom and Judah. He will become a sanctuary, a stone one strikes against for both houses of Israel. He will become a rock one stumbles over, a trap and a snare for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Fall on the Lord in faith, or you will stumble over him in judgment. Now, is the Lord faithful? Does he do what he promises? Of course. What the Lord promised was exactly what happened. In a short time, the king of Assyria crushed Syria and Israel and took away that threat. The northern kingdom was destroyed and the people were scattered. The Lord delivered the people of Judah. Ahaz, not surprisingly, being the wicked king he was, he made an alliance with Assyria anyway and brought the worship of the Assyrian gods to Israel, right into the temple. His son, Hezekiah, would spend most of his reign trying to undo all the evil things his father had done. Judgment eventually came on Judah too, just as it had on Israel. Because the kings of Judah, with a few notable exceptions, but most of the kings of Israel, failed to trust in the Lord. Now, wind the clock back 730 years to Matthew. Why does he quote this prophecy about Emmanuel when it was fulfilled 700 years before? Matthew does this because in the story of Isaiah and Ahaz, We see how God works. We see God's goodness. We see God's faithfulness to his people and his call to his people to consistently trust in him. We also see God's warning of judgment when his people are unfaithful to him and to the calling that he has given Israel was, yet again, in another awful political spot in Matthew's day. This time it was Rome, not the Assyrians. Just as Ahaz turned to horses and chariots and to forbidden alliances and false gods instead of trusting the Lord, the Jews of Matthew's day, in their own way, were trusting in all the wrong sorts of things. We see this. Jesus spent his entire ministry rebuking these different parties and interest groups. You had the zealots. They were ready to take up arms in a violent revolution. You had the Essenes who went off to hide in the desert and they denounced everybody else as unfaithful. And you had the Sadducees who just sort of took the... they were the rich guys who didn't want to be upset. So they just sort of took the, if you can't beat them, join them, tack. All of them needed to be reminded of who they were and to whom they belonged and in whom they had, based on their history, every reason to trust. Isaiah made use of three different children. I should say the Lord made use of three different children of Isaiah. And Matthew could have pointed back to any one of those three. We just think we could be singing, O come, O come, Mahershala hashbaz every Advent. But Isaiah points back specifically to the child named Emmanuel, God with us. Because it is a poignant reminder that in Jesus, God truly is with his people. This is what the people of Matthew's day needed to hear, as a call back to faith in the Lord and in the Lord alone. But in an even deeper way, in Jesus, the Lord is with us in a way he never was with his people before. Whereas in Isaiah's day, the virgin and her child were a sign that the Lord was about to act. This time it was the child in whom the Lord was coming to take the decisive act in history. In this baby born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, God himself became incarnate. God became one of us to once and for all deliver his people from bondage and to make all things new. And this leads Matthew directly to the angel's instruction to Joseph. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus. That's our English word. It comes from the Greek, Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua, which is just a slightly elongated form of the same name, Yahshua. Does that sound familiar, Yahshua? In English, we say Joshua. Joshua, Yeshua, in Hebrew, they're they're the same name, just one's a shorter, one's a longer version of it. And they were common names in the days of Mary and Joseph. It means Yahweh delivers. The Lord, the God of Israel, delivers and saves. And of course, that made it a popular name amongst the Jews, But it was made even more popular because the most famous Joshua of all time was the Joshua who took over from Moses and led the Israelites into the promised land. So Jesus is not only God with us, but he is the one who will, like Joshua, fulfill what was begun in the Exodus. Joshua led the people into the promised land and Jesus will free his people from their bondage to sin and death and lead them into the life of the age to come. Into God's kingdom. And Matthew highlights the important truth for us. That Jesus didn't just appear at any old point in history. To any old group of people. He came in the fullness of time. As Saint Paul writes in our epistle from Galatians. He came in the fullness of time. He came when the time was right. He came as part of a much bigger story. He came as the fulfillment of the promise of to the people who had struggled themselves to be faithful. He came to die for the sins of his people, to make them clean and to fill them with his spirit. Again, to fulfill the story and to make good on God's promises so that they, and eventually so that we, incorporated into their story, can truly love God with hearts and minds made new. mean, you might think it would be enough To cause us to praise and glorify God simply that he sent Jesus into into the world at any point in time to save his people from their sins. And I think that's often as far as we think about it. But the fact is, again, Jesus came at a specific time, at a specific place, to a specific people, in a specific way, which Matthew highlights. So that it's not just some random coming to deliver. But that we can see the faithfulness of the God of Israel to his promises. And in that we give him glory. As we read in Revelation, when we studied Revelation. It's that faithfulness of God to his promises that causes the Gentiles to finally come and give him glory. I mean, theoretically their gods could come and save too. They don't. But in theory they could. But are they ever faithful to their promises? No. The way the story happens in the fullness of time shows how great God is and how faithful He is to do what He's always said. And that's what brings us into it. And that's what Paul's getting at in our epistle in Galatians 4, 1-7 where he writes... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. See, a specific time and place and people. So that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul's one of those people, but most of the people in the Galatian church were Gentiles. And because you are now sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Brothers and sisters, this is a story into which you and I have been baptized. A story that was not originally our own, but in which we now have a part. Think about that. I mean, think about the formula we use in our baptism. This is what I want to close with. Think about our baptismal formula. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we think about this in terms of the story of redemption, at least not as much or as often as we should. Because we usually think of this formula as specifying which God we're putting our faith in. You know, when I baptize someone and say in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you know, we sometimes we think, well, we're being clear that you're not being baptized into the Mormon God or into Zeus or into Krishna or into the Great Spirit or whatever. I'm baptizing you into the triune God who exists as Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one and one in three. And that's part of it. But the more important aspect of it is that this is the God who has acted in history to redeem us and to redeem his creation. So we're baptized into the name of the Father, meaning that we are being incorporated into the family of the God of Israel, whose kingdom will come in judgment and restoration. It means we're being baptized into the family that Isaiah called on to trust wholly in our God, because he's good and faithful. So when we look around at all of the sin and pain and suffering in the world, we can know that we belong to the God who is making all things new. He is our God and we are his people. As Jesus said, and as Paul writes here, through our union with his son, Jesus, we are the father's adopted sons and daughters and can approach him as Abba Father. I love the way Paul puts that. Because he's writing to these people who, they're struggling with the Jew-Gentile uh, uh, distinction. And he's like, you're all one in Jesus. You call him Abba. That's the Aramaic word like Papa. It's something you call your own father. You know, I wouldn't call your father Papa, but I might call mine. I'd call him Dad, but you get what I mean. But then he uses the Greek word for father as well. Greek and Jew alike, they come to him as father. We're baptized into the name of the Son who in his own baptism committed himself in obedience and in faith to the saving plan of his Father. Again, trusting not in human means, not in human plans, but in the goodness and faithfulness of the God of Israel. Baptism into the name of the Son also expresses a commitment to taking up our crosses as we follow him, knowing his promise of rejection, persecution, and even martyrdom for those who follow him. We are baptized, as Paul writes, into his death. We are also baptized into his resurrection. So when we're tempted to fear, we need only remember our baptism. Luther said he used to do that. When he was afraid, when he questioned where he stood before God, he would grab his forehead where the water was poured on him and say, remember that you were baptized. You are God's covenant child. You belong to him. God has vindicated his son, and he will vindicate his adopted sons and daughters too. And finally, to be baptized into the name of the Holy Spirit is to be baptized into both a new life and a new mission. Jesus gave the Spirit to his people to fulfill what had been promised long before, to give fallen men and women new hearts finally capable of trusting and obeying and loving God. Doing those things that Ahaz was just totally incapable of doing because of his fallen heart. But the Spirit also makes us a prophetic people, a people who are called to proclaim this good news to the world, the good news that this Jesus who was born of Mary, who died and rose again, who ascended to his Father's right hand, that he is the world's true Lord. It is a prophetic call to the world around us to stop trusting in horses and chariots, to stop trusting in money and power and sex, to stop trusting in false gods and pretender kings, and instead to come to Jesus and to be baptized just as we have. To submit to the Father's plans. To take up our crosses daily as we follow the Son into the life of the age to come. And to take up this spirit-filled ministry of proclamation until he comes again. There is no doubt that the task we have been given is a hard one. But brothers and sisters, today we are reminded. God is with us. And if Ahaz could be called to repentance and faith. Because soon that child named God with us would be with them. Just an ordinary child, but a symbol. Brothers and sisters, how much more are we reminded that God is with us. By the very fact that his son has come. That he has died, that he has risen, and that he has poured our spirit into our hearts. God is with us. Let's pray. Almighty God, you have given your only begotten Son to take our nature upon him and to be born of a pure virgin. Grant that we who have been born again and made your children by adoption and grace may daily be renewed by your Holy Spirit through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with you in the same Spirit be honor and glory now and forever. Amen.